Amen. Let me uh, invite you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 63. Psalm 63, we'll read together. Uh, It's good to be with you again. Uh, If we haven't met, my name is Davis Morgan. I'm the RUF uh, campus minister uh, for college students at Southern Miss and uh, a missionary of First Perez and uh, uh, glad to be something of a frequent flyer uh, here in the pulpit, and it's good to be with you. Um, uh, As we turn to Psalm 63, let me apologize if I'm a little croaky this morning. I'm... uh, Family had some sickness this last week, which I'm glad we got out of the way before VBS so we don't turn VBS into Super Spreader 23. So let's read together Psalm 63. This is God's word. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you in a dry as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades. The word of our God stands forever. Let's pray and ask God to teach us his word. Pray with me, if you will. Heavenly Father, this is your word, which you have been kind to reveal to us. This is your word, which is without error in any part, which is written by your power through your spirit, through the instrument of human beings for your glory and for our good. This is your word that tells us of our only hope of salvation. So I pray that you would give us listening ears and attentive eyes and soft hearts to read it, to digest it, to understand it so that we would seek your face. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, Friends, this is a psalm about longing about longing and thirsting after God. David is in the wilderness, and he's probably on the run for his life, probably from King Saul, although if this is later in his life, maybe from his own son, Absalom. 
but either way, he's probably on the run for his life, and he's certainly uh, on his own in the desert, suffering with hunger and thirst. Uh, I don't know what the most thirsty you've ever been in your life is. And maybe none of us have been as thirsty as David is in this story. But I can remember uh, hiking in uh, the, the desert in Nevada uh, in canyons and things like that after uh, my college graduation and uh, being struck just not with how hot it was but how arid how dry and parched and and finding myself uh, randomly realizing uh, how dehydrated I was uh, because I'm a Mississippi boy and I'd never experienced arid climate before. It was a dry and thirsty land and we're experiencing uh, David's experience of that dry thirstiness. Uh, But what David does in this psalm is he turns from his physical thirst to thirsting after God. Uh, Because David knows something, friends. He knows something that all of us need to be taught by him today. David knows that his desperate need for water, that parched, dying thirst in him, is just a shadow of how desperate his need for God is. You see, this is a song about longing about yearning. There was a funny uh, arc of Seinfeld episodes uh, where Cosmo Kramer, the wiry, wild uh, character who busts through the door in every episode, uh, moves to California because he wants to become an actor. And I see some of you smiling because you know this. And before he moves, Cosmo Kramer goes to the coffee shop uh, with George Costanza, who is the opposite of California. He's the uh, uh, sad, kind of pathetic... Uh, lonely character on the show and he's very, he's the most worldly of the characters and, and Kramer tells him his plans to move to California and to, to become an actor and Costanza can't understand and, and, and he doesn't understand, you know, he has no idea why you would want to do that and Kramer leans across the table in that way that only Cosmo Kramer can do and says, George, do you ever yearn? And, and George Costanza doesn't know what to do with this. He says, yearn? Do I yearn? No. Uh, I crave, I'm constantly craving, but I don't yearn. Do you yearn? And, and Kramer says, oh, yes. Yes, I yearn, George. And, and in that classic Kramer way, he says, often I just sit and yearn. And first, I, I think that Kramer actually knows something. I think there's actually something wise in what he says there, that so often we are lost in our cravings, lost in... Uh, in, in chasing this craving or that, but underneath, there's a deep yearning. David knows that, that beyond his craving for food and water, which are life-sustaining things, I'm not diminishing that craving, but underneath that, David knows that he is just as desperate, more desperate for his deep yearning for God himself. And so what this psalm does is it teaches us to train our hearts to long for God like we long for water. That's what this psalm is about, training our hearts to long after God like we do for water. And so we're going to look at that this morning under two simple headings, longing and satisfaction. Longing and satisfaction. So first, friends, we see longing. Uh, As I said, David is turning from this physical 
need, this desperate need of water to his relationship to God. But it's interesting, and I think really interesting for us Presbyterian types, if you're one of us in the room, that he doesn't turn to theology. He, he doesn't turn to logic. He doesn't turn to uh, uh, systematics. He bypasses thought in, completely. He bypasses the realm of thought and proposition and doctrine and goes immediately to appetite. He goes immediately to longing. He doesn't say, God, you are my God. I believe in you. He says, God, you are my God, and I thirst for you. I long for you. I'm parched for you. You see, the Bible uh, views human beings differently than we do. And some of you may have heard me talk about this before, but, uh, you know, one author is fond of saying it this way, that, that for, so, uh, for so many centuries now, we have tended to look at human beings like a brain on a stick. Uh, and I think Presbyterians, we are particularly guilty of this, that we tend to think, look, we are functionally just a hard drive, and if you download the right thoughts, if you, if you download the right information, if we get the right thoughts bouncing around in your head, you'll be fixed. But what do we find in our lives? When push comes to shove, I can't bring my behaviors into line with my thoughts so often. Right? When, when temptation comes, I can't bring uh, what I do on the average Thursday night into conformity with what I say that my thoughts and worldview and beliefs are. Because when thoughts and cravings come up against each other, nine times out of, win, uh, out of ten, craving wins. Because, and here's what the Bible says about that is that you're not a brain on a stick. You're a heart. The way the Bible talks about human beings is that the center of you is not a CPU. It's not a processing system. It's a heart that is built for craving and longing and love. You're not a brain on a stick. You're a lover. That's what one philosopher says. Proverbs 4, verse 23, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. And when it says heart, that's not talking about your emotions. It's talking about the center of your loves, the center of your desires. You are a desiring, longing creature. Jesus picks up on this idea in Matthew chapter 6 when he says, Wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You see, your heart resides with whatever it is you prize most. And that is what controls you. One Anglican scholar says it this way, that what the heart loves, the will chooses and the mind justifies. Listen to that again. What the heart loves, the will chooses and the mind justifies. The mind doesn't direct the will. The mind is actually captive to what the will wants, and the will itself is captive in turn to what the heart wants. You're not a brain on a stick. You're not a thinking thing primarily. You're a lover. You're a worshiper. You're made for longing. I'll tell you who gets this, actually, that that you are a creature of longing. The Walt Disney Corporation Disney gets longing. That's why they make billions of dollars off of your longings every year. That's why every new Disney movie is tapping into our longings. That's why, uh, that's why my daughter and me will sit and sing the Moana song, right? Where 
I've been staring at the edge of the water, looking out at that horizon, wondering how far I'll go. Some, it's, it's Rapunzel singing, when will my life begin? It's also, by the way, I'll tell you who else gets longing, Bono. Because it's you too, isn't it? It's you too singing, I've climbed the highest mountains, but I still haven't found what I'm looking for. The Rolling Stones sang it too, that I can't get no satisfaction. You're a desiring creature. You're a heart. If you've ever seen or read the the Harry Potter franchise, you may remember the magical mirror that Harry finds in the first novel, the magical mirror of Erised, which is desire spelled backwards if no one's ever told you that. And when Harry finds this mirror, he comes into it, and Harry, who's an orphan, who's never had a family, looks in the mirror and he sees his mom and dad. And he brings his friend Ron, and Ron, who's, the young, or who, who's in the middle of a big line of siblings and is always overshadowed, sees himself as head boy at the school and as Quidditch captain. And they're confused, and finally, Professor Dumbledore explains that what this mirror does is it shows us nothing more or less than the deepest, most desperate desire of our hearts, and that's why it's probably the most dangerous thing here at the school. So here's the question, friends. If you stand in front of the mirror, what does it show you? What is the magical mirror going to show you this Lord's Day morning? Because whatever you see in the mirror, what your heart most desperately longs for, that is what rules you. That is what controls you. And so often we chase idols in dead-end streets, don't we? Uh, we chase it. We, we chase, as, uh, as C.S. Lewis would say, uh, we waste our time with things like food and drink and power and sex when infinite joy is offered to us. One writer wrote it this way in the 19th century, every man who knocks on the door of a brothel is unconsciously seeking for God. It's what Tom Brady felt after winning multiple Super Bowl rings. And you may have seen that famous interview with him where he says, every time I get another Super Bowl ring, all I can think is, is that it? There's got to be more than this. Tom, what are you talking about? You've got a handful of Super Bowl rings. You're the GOAT. You're the most successful football player who's ever lived. You're married to a supermodel. You have all these riches and wealth, and you're the most famous person. It's got to be more than this. I recently read uh, a memoir by Matthew Perry uh, Chandler from Friends about his struggles with addiction and alcoholism um, and, and fame. And he says in there somewhere, no one will ever believe this unless it happens to them, but getting all of your dreams actually doesn't fix you. And he says, I think you actually have to have all your dreams come true to realize that they don't fix you. Uh, my, my wife will appreciate this one. Um, uh, so my wife will send me TikToks randomly, and, and there's a really funny one she sends that I think you'll relate to uh, of a husband who's talking about his wife, and she sa- he says, my wife buys all these bushels of bananas and brings them home and, and sets them on the counter, 
And you know what happens to those bananas on the counter, don't you? They rot there, right? They sit there and they turn brown and they turn black. And he says, I'm going to go throw these away. And my wife always says, don't throw those bananas away. What's going to happen? I'm going to make banana bread with them. And then he just stares at the camera and says, there's never banana bread. There are only rotten bananas. There is never any banana bread. It's only rotten bananas. Friends, when we seek, when we just chase our cravings, when we chase the cravings and ignore the yearning underneath, there's never banana bread. There's never banana bread. It's what Edmund Pevensey realized when he realized that the witch's Turkish delight would never fill him up. And the more he ate it, the hungrier he got. You see, Scripture says not only that you are a heart, but that God has designed your heart to yearn for something that feels unattainable. Augustine said it this way, that, Lord, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Uh, I'm a big fan of Planet Earth, uh, the BBC Nature documentary. Um, and I don't know about you, I... I, I I just like to watch planet Earth as a soothing exercise. Just something about seeing something green and nature, and but not actually having to get near a tiger, you know, to get that. Um, <clears throat> but I'll tell you, I, I don't know how much this cameraman gets paid, but it's not enough. There's an episode in a planet Earth. Uh, planet Earth. It's a nature show. I, I, yeah, I assume y'all kind of know what it is. Um, it's a nature show with David Attenborough narrating it with that soothing British accent. And there's an episode where they follow these African elephants through the desert who are following generations-old paths that this grandmother elephant knows to find oases and to find groves of trees where they can get a little moisture out of the leaves. And they come to this one grove of trees where every year it's green, but this year it's almost all barren. There's only a few leaves that are green, and they're up so high that mostly they can't reach them. And this cameraman gets this perfect shot of the grandmother elephant, the leader of the tribe, uh, the, the, the leader of, is, an ele- is a group of elephants a crash? No, that's rhinos. I don't know what a group of elephants is called, sorry. Uh, but she's reaching up, and she rears back on her hind legs, stands up, extends, and uh, uh, stretches her trunk up as far as she can get to get this one leaf that's at the very top of the tree, and they zoom in on this leaf and her trunk, and she just can't get it. It's just out of reach. That's you. That's me. That's us with our longings. C.S. Lewis used the German word for it, Zainsucht. A longing, a yearning, a craving, a desire for something that seems unattainable in this world. David is saying, I found it. And it's not a what, it's a who, it's God himself. You were made to yearn after him. And so we see longing, but we also see satisfaction. You see, David's not just longing for a place, he's longing for a person. But in verse 5, he says, my soul will be satisfied. And that Hebrew word for satisfaction is a word of being filled up, absolutely filled to burst. 
He says, with fat and rich food. It's a strange metaphor. But culturally, what he's saying is, I'm going to get the good stuff. The best there is. I love taking my family to uh, the, the Hattiesburg Zoo, uh, especially on the Renaissance Fair week. Uh, and I'll, I know a lot of y'all do the same. Um, there's so much fun to do on the Renaissance Fair week, but it's also the one week where they have turkey legs, where they have roasted turkey legs for sale. And I, I got to introduce my five-year-old Sam, who I th- hope is okay with me telling the story, to turkey legs this year and see him take this this massive hunk of, of turkey and just rip into it and the juice is dripping off. If you're a vegetarian in the room, I apologize. Sub watermelon because it's the same thing, right? Uh, just is so exquisitely, divinely filling that it dribbles all over him. There's no way for it not to. David's saying, that's, that's what God has for me. And when he says that, he's not talking about getting restored to his kingdom. He's talking about getting God himself. God is the goal. In verse 7, he shifts to this other metaphor of, of rejoicing under the shadow of his wings. Rejoicing under the shadow of, the, of, of God's wings. It's this image of a protecting mother bird. An eagle, and Jesus picks up on this same image that's, that's one from Deuteronomy that God uses. And he says, how, I would, how I've longed to gather God's people of Jerusalem under my arms as a mother gathers her chicks. You see, what David's saying culturally is all my needs are met, and I can rest. I'm safe. You see, this is the crucial question is all our rotten bananas, all our dead-end streets, all the cravings we chase, do they have wings to shadow us? Can they protect us? Can they make you safe? You see, they don't just leave us half full, they leave us half safe. But with David, we don't just see him being satisfied, we see him clinging clinging to the one safe place. In verse 8, he says he clings to God. Then he finishes the psalm reflecting on how his enemies are ultimately going, they're not going to destroy him, they're going to be destroyed. You see, he has safety in the face of trouble. And he can rejoice in God even in the face of their hatred. See, that's the truest test of our hearts and of our idols. Is the, the place where we learn what we're actually trusting in and whether or not it is strong enough to hold up is when we need something to cling to. When danger and trouble comes and we ask, what have you got for me here? This is David in the wilderness, most likely on the run for his life. He's a fugitive. He's desperately hungry. He's in need of water. It's like those stories of Hurricane Katrina when the waves would come in on the coast uh, in places like Bay St. Louis and New Orleans when, when people would tell stories of feeling utterly helpless. And the only thing you could do was find the tallest tree and get as high up in it as you can. And when the waves come, you grab onto that tree and you hold your breath. 
and you count to 10, 20, 30. You just count. And then when the, ra- when the waves recede, you take a deep breath and you get ready to do it again. You see, the thing you cling to, the big tree, that is your God. And so here's, here's the question is, is whether or not our tree is worth clinging to. David Foster Wallace famously said it this way, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what we worship. If you worship money and things, if they're where you tap meaning in life, then you'll never feel you have enough. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power, and you will feel weak and afraid And you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect being seen as smart and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on. You see, our our idols aren't worth clinging to. There's only one who is. And we ask, well, how, how can we know that God is worth clinging to? Here's how David knew. Back at the beginning of the psalm, verse 2, and he says, So I've seen you in the sanctuary. So, so David is out in the wilderness, and he's reflecting on the sanctuary worship of God, where what would he have seen there? He would have seen the sacrificial system at work. He would have seen sacrifices offered. And one pastor points out, there's two conclusions he would have drawn from that. As David is reflecting on seeing an animal being sacrificed, he would have been able to conclude, one, for me to be in relationship to God, for me to be together with God again, means there has to be a death. (coughs) Pardon me. And number two, God has provided a way for it to not be my death. For me to be together with God requires a death, but it doesn't have to be my death because God has provided a substitute. Excuse me. You see, when David was in danger, when he's cast out, when he's threatened, he can know that God has made him safe, that he's never going to be finally cast out of God's presence because Jesus was You see, the cross means that you can never be utterly cast aside by God because Jesus was. You will never be crushed because Jesus was crushed. (coughs) Excuse me, friends. (coughs) And if that's true, (coughs) if that's true, then there's no desert where you can't trust him. If Jesus was cast out so that you won't be, if he was made thirsty so that you could be replenished and refreshed, then there's no thirst that you can't trust God in. There's no crushing that he can't uh, deliver you from. There's no loneliness, no darkness, no isolation, no pain where he can't find you and rescue you. Which means we cling to him alone. And we train our hearts to do that. Uh, There was an episode of... I feel like the Holy Spirit wants a sermon into soon. 
to end soon. Uh, there was an episode of The Crown uh, that dealt with the 1966 tragedy of a small Welsh town uh, where an avalanche of coal waste flowed from the mines above town down into the community, completely burying an elementary school, killing 116 children and 28 adults. And if you know anything about the crown, it's told from the perspective of the royal family, specifically the queen. And days later, there's a mass funeral for 81 of the victims to be buried. And in this fictional version, the queen's husband, Prince Philip, attends the funeral. And uh, Philip is not particularly religious, uh, but he's so moved by this tragedy, he goes... Uh, and the queen asks him later how it went, and he says it was, it was extraordinary. Uh, the grief, the anger, the rage. Uh, but then he says what, what was more extraordinary was how they reacted, what they did. And the queen asks, what, what did they do? And he says, they sang. They sang. The whole community. He says it's the most astonishing, the most astonishing thing I've ever heard. Now, parts of that episode are fictionalized. I can tell you what's not fictionalized is that they did sing. Uh, and I wish I had thought to make it our closing hymn, but they sang Jesus, lover of my soul. They sang together, other refuge have I none. I helpless hang on thee. Leave, oh, leave me not alone. Support and comfort me. All my trust on thee is stayed. All help from thee I bring. Cover my defenseless head in the shadow of thy wing. Friends, what's happened for that community and what we pray happens for our community in this church is that the hope of the gospel, the good news of the cross and the empty tomb, the the satisfaction of Jesus himself has been so embedded into this group of people that when trouble comes, they immediately cling to the only one who can satisfy and make them safe. May God make it so for us. Let's pray. King Jesus, we lift up our hearts to you and ask uh, that you would draw us to yourself, that you would glorify yourself in our midst, and through us, that you would transform us as we behold your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.